Amen. All right, let's go Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. The reason for that is real, real simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of really important stuff, but the, the most important of those really important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We, we want you to know God. We want you to, to walk in relationship with him, and if the, the way you know him and walk in relationship with him is through his word, then that puts you at a disadvantage if you don't have a copy of the word. And so uh, if you don't have a copy, take that physical one home and uh, start reading it. And I'll, I'll call it a win and buy new Bibles. It'll be a lot of fun. All right. So um, we've been celebrating today all of the wonderful things that God has seen fit to do through our Harvest Day efforts. And, and so now that we've officially shut things down, we've, we've called the time out and everything is now just on, on rest. All right. Uh, now that our extra steps of obedience are done, now what? Like, what, what do we do? Well, it just so happens, now that the offering has been taken, that this is the absolute perfect time for me to speak to something that would be really awkward if I tried to do it before the offering was taken. I want to talk about tithing today. Yay! <laughs> tithing! Woo! Now, for those of you who don't have a church background, tithing is, is what we call the, the regular practice of giving to a church by the members of that church family, right? Um, and, and I get it. There's a lot of people in the world, maybe, maybe you're even one of them, uh, that, that thinks that you know, churches don't ever shut up about money, uh, that they talk about it all the time, too much. And, and just to be honest, the, the larger Christian subculture doesn't really give you a lot of reason to think otherwise. Like, whether that's the, the giant church down the road that's always in a capital building campaign because, you know, we got to make the building a little bit bigger so God can finally work here. Or maybe it's the, uh, the guy on TV with the big smile and the white suit fleecing little old ladies out of their money, you know, so that, you know, because they need to sow a seed of faith or something like that. So we can probably all think of example after example after example of somebody who's claiming to speak for God, but at the end of the day, it's just money grabbing, right? We, we probably have all seen that story play out, and, and I'll, I'll just lay myself out there a little bit. Like, because all of those examples exist, and because there's just too many to count, I, I actually find myself at times being the one who's a little scared of talking about this stuff, because I don't want to be that guy, right? Anybody else want to be that guy? <laughs> no, I don't want to be that guy either, and so I can actually end up being guilty of never bringing the gospel to bear on one of the most functional and practical everywhere in our culture things in our life, right? If the gospel has nothing to say about how we spend our money, then what does it have to say anything about? And so those of us who are Christians, though, we, we believe that there really is an enemy who's working to deceive, who's working to undermine good things and undermine God and his kingdom and that he blinds our eyes to good things and he manipulates good things into being self-exalting, self-glorifying things, self-serving things. And so really the question is out there, like, do you think he ever like, works on how we view our money? You think maybe he does? Is it possible that the cultural awkwardness that we all feel around this subject might actually be something specifically designed by the bad guy to rob God of glory? Maybe, just maybe. And so in one sense, pressing in here, what if it's actually an assault on the kingdoms of this world? Well, that sounds like something we can get behind, right? And so, if handled correctly, maybe we can actually bring healing and the gospel to bear on, man, an incredibly cultural 
important thing in our culture. So how do we press in? Well, a long time ago, I was on staff at a church, uh, and we, we came up with this really clever idea that, you know, we got a bunch of kids in the service, and, and they don't really know what's going on here. And so how about this? How about we have a little mini-series where we walk through each of the elements of, uh, of the church service, and we spend a week each explaining why we do those things. Because we didn't want to just do them. We wanted, to, we wanted all of our kids to understand why we did them, right? And so I was the, I was the associate pastor on staff there, and so we, we took turns preaching on these different elements. And so so one week we talked about the sermon. So one week we talked about baptism. One week we talked about uh, you know, why we sing, all those kinds of things. And it just so happened that, that the week of the offering fell to me. Wonder how that happened. <laughs> Pastor didn't want it, I guess. But I got to try to explain to all these little kids why we do an offering. And so as I sat down and was trying to think through you know, this and that, it occurred to me, you know what, passing a plate is really kind of a weird thing to do. You ever thought through that? Like, there's, that's kind of unique in our culture. The closest thing I can think of to that happening in our culture is if you're at the baseball game and you want to buy a hot dog. And so what do you do? You pass your money down the line and then they pass the hot dog back, right? And if you're normal, you're thinking, oh, no, they're going to take my money. Oh, no, they're going to take my money. Every time somebody else grabs the dollar bills, you're worried about that. If you're me, you're worried they're going to take your hot dog. But that's the closest I can think of. Like passing a plate in the middle of a service is an incredibly unique thing in our culture. And so, so, so why do we do that? Well, I can tell you what it's not. I can give you some negative examples. It's not a toll to continue with the service. That'd be fun though, right? Like a TV commercial in the middle of the show. Could you imagine me calling a timeout and saying, now time for a word from our sponsors. <laughs> Hang on just a moment because we've got to pay some bills, right? No, that's not it. It's also, neither is it a, a tip for good service. Uh, um, you might not have ever thought through this, but there's actually a reason why we do the offering before the sermon. It's because we don't want reactionary giving. <laughs> Especially when I'm preaching. <laughs> now, we don't want reactionary giving. and Reactionary giving isn't healthy. We want responsive giving, Right? We want you to prayerfully think through what you're doing. There's a big difference between those two viewpoints, right? But there's a third thing that the offering is not. It's also not an opportunity to show off our giving, right? First of all, Jesus explicitly made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that that attitude was a bad idea, right? Those of you who aren't familiar with the story, Jesus, uh, he, he, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says that those who give in order to be seen are going to get the fullness of their reward, meaning that there's nothing in it for them other than the cultural cachet of being seen as the giver. And it stops there. There's no eternal benefit to that. And so it's just kind of a dumb thing to do in Jesus' perspective. But also later in Acts chapter 5, we're told of a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and the story goes that they make a big show of giving a gift to the church, and they, they go out of their way to try to show off that they gave more than they actually did. And they did it all so that they could be seen and celebrated. And if you don't know the story, they're called out on that, and God strikes them dead. Like, like we don't include that one in children's curriculum oftentimes. Right? Now, I, I don't think that... I don't think that God does that today still. I think that was probably a one-time message that was sent to the early church. But like, do you want to test him on that? 
probably ought to like pay attention to the original example, right? And so, and so if stories like that are true, why would we have a public offering at all? Like if it's possible to, to run the wrong direction with those things, why do we do them? I mean, couldn't we just as easily put a box in the back of the room? That's allowed. Our friends in the Korean church, that's exactly what they do. Lots of other churches do that too. They'll, they'll have like nice little kiosks set up and giving centers and maybe sometimes they're equipped with iPads for online giving. You could do that kind of thing. We also have an online giving platform. Like about half of our church gives online. And so if, if anonymous options exist, if we have other ways of doing it, why then do we insist on passing a plate around in front of people? It's because the problem is less about whether or not the offering is happening in front of other people and more about the heart behind it, right? See, if we developed some incredibly high-tech, completely anonymous system, the sinful human heart would still find a way to show itself off. That's what sinful hearts do. Sin always rises to the surface, and so if you're looking for other people to see, it doesn't matter if we're anonymous or not, you'll find a way. And so we think it's best to offer lots of different options for giving and then let mature people attempting to walk deeply with Jesus figure it out, right? And so that means that some of our people give online, some choose to give during the offering time. There are others who do significant various combinations of both. Some people fill out an envelope, and a lot of people put loose cash in the plate so that even the church doesn't know that they gave. And that's okay. It will always come back to our own heart and how we need to handle stuff. And Jesus is big enough to be Lord over all those options, right? And so we've got a few reasons why we don't do our offering, but negative reasons don't get you very far. So what's the positive reason? Well, Acts chapter 2. For those of you who are new to the Bible, the book of Acts is about uh, the first Christians and how God grew them from being just a couple of hundred people to several thousand people very quickly. Um, In Acts chapter 1, we see uh, the account of Jesus' ascension. Uh, Jesus tasks this infant church, this brand new gathering of people with the job of making disciples from all the other places. And in Acts' version of this story, we see Jesus tell them to make other followers, other disciples from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're, They're in Jerusalem. That's home. Their province is Judea. That's the larger area. Samaria Samaria is the province next door that they don't like very much. And then the ends of the earth is pretty self-explanatory, right? Like, I don't have to, like, spell that one out. And so that means, essentially, all the places. Like, there's nothing that doesn't qualify in that category. They're all covered. Just check off the boxes. All right? uh, but their job is to make disciples from all of the other places, Jesus followers from all of the other places. But they don't simply do that in their power. Jesus also promises to send them a helper with a capital H. Right? Jesus promised to send them the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, to dwell in them and dwell with them and amongst them and to empower them for the task that Jesus has given them. That's their job. And then in chapter 2 of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit show up. And he shows up big. The first thing that happens is that the Gospels were claimed in a bunch of different languages all at once. There's like tongues of fire over their heads. And I really wish I could see that, but I'd probably be scared in the corner. Lots of people come to know Jesus. And immediately after that, Peter preaches a sermon out of the Old Testament. And 3,000 people get saved. (laughs) 
That's why we preach the Old Testament here. There's not a pastor alive that wouldn't give his right arm for a Sunday like that. But it's also a logistics nightmare. If you're in charge of leading a group of people and they go from you know, 120 to 3,000 overnight, how are you structuring things? What's your plan of attack? Well, in verse 42, the story begins to unfold. Look at what it says with me. And they, that's all the followers of Jesus, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, pretty simple stuff, right? Like, like there's some who want to romanticize this story, kind of take, turn it into to something that it's not. Um, and the truth is that there was a, a lot of mess here. All, right? uh, all you have to do to remember that is just kind of take a little short walk through the epistles, the letters in the back of the, the New Testament, right? All those letters are written to churches to address this issue over here and that issue over there, and then oftentimes this issue over here again, right? And so over and over again, it's like, no, 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 that's, that's not how we do things. This is how we do things. And sometimes they're calling out incredibly obvious sin. So there's a lot of junk here, but man, there's, there's also a really, really beautiful simplicity to it all in there. No major programs. No mortgage to be paid on their meeting space. No arms race to be seen as more relevant than the church down the road for them. Just They just spent time together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to understanding the gospel and walking in obedience to Jesus and His commands. They spent time in each other's homes and they ate meals together. And a lot of people think that, that this breaking bread reference is, is talking about that they, they practice the Lord's Supper. They practice communion on a regular basis. Because this isn't complicated. Not a bit. And if we're honest, isn't, isn't it also attractive? In a world that's constantly finding new ways to ramp up the pace. Ramp up the stress. Don't you at least sometimes long for something as simple as this. I know I do. But take note, because simple is not the same thing as powerless. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God, wasn't, God was using this simplicity in a powerful, powerful way. And again, I don't want to romanticize things, but for all the effort that we sometimes put into having to do big things for God, right? We've got we to do this in order to be obedient. And, and we've got to do that to finally fulfill the mission that he's called us to. Texts like this one make it abundantly clear that God doesn't need any of those things. Not a one. God doesn't need any of those things to work powerfully. Programs and resources aren't bad. They can be incredibly helpful tools to accomplish the thing that God is calling us to, but they can just as easily be a crutch that we lean on instead of God himself. Just as easily. They can, they can distract us just as easily as they can help us. Now this is something that needs to be proactively reminded of ourselves over and over again throughout the year, but it's especially important on a day where we're celebrating all the shiny new toys that Jesus gave us, right? 
We don't simply rest in the comfort of having these things. We prayerfully think through and steward them and leverage these things for kingdom ministry. Or else we shouldn't have these things. So let me make it explicitly clear. God does not need any of the stuff we bought through our Harvest Day effort. Not one bit. We're going to do everything we can to use these tools for his glory, but he doesn't need them. And we see in verse 43 here that he was pleased to work powerfully through a group of brand new Jesus followers. Guys who were struggling to figure it all out under the threat of persecution through the simplicity of spending time together around fellowship and his word. If church life is complicated, then it's possible that we're doing it wrong. Now, There are difficult seasons for sure. There are hard days to walk through like any other family has. But what God wants for us is not complicated. If it's complicated, it's probably our fault. His design really is that simple. He uses it powerfully for his own glory. Well, that's great and all, but what does this have to do with tithing? I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay, so there are all kinds of questions that begin to swirl around when you start talking about the tithing thing, but they mostly revolve around two questions. Number one, does God still require that of his people? And number two, if he does, what percentage? Like, those are the two questions. Like, there are other questions, but those are the two questions that they normally revolve around. All right? So if you don't have much of a church background, the whole conversation is going to feel complicated to you, foreign to you. But in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with a special family of people called the Israelites, right? He made a covenant with this one family, starting with Abraham. He he promised to be near them and to bless them. He eventually rescues them out of slavery in Egypt, and he calls them into being a nation of people for his own pleasure. And so this nation has taxes, and it has a sacrificial system. Both of these systems called this covenant people, to give towards specific things at specific times. That's what it is. Now, the word tithe literally means a tenth. Right? And so uh, this is where a lot of people get the idea that God expects them to give 10% of their whatever to the church. And so the first time we see the tithe in the Old Testament is not in Exodus. It's not standing at the foot of Sinai when God gives the law. It's in Genesis chapter 14. And it's given by Abraham. The patriarch of the patriarchs. The first person to be identified as God's people. Several hundred years before the Exodus, before God gives them the covenant and the commands of the law around that covenant, Abraham gives a tithe to a mysterious priestly king called Melchizedek. Those of you who are in the child-bearing years, next time you have a kid, you should really name him Melchizedek. Just, just throwing that out there. We need to bring back some Bible names, right? <laughs> Melchizedek. And as far as we know, this is not something that Abraham was required to do. No one said, Abraham, stop. Stop, Abraham. You need, you need to give Melchizedek 10% of, of, of this stuff so that you can push forward with faithfulness. It was simply something that Abraham did to honor God after a good thing that happened. And so the practice of giving a tithe predates the law by a significant amount. It's a, it's a 
It's a cultural piece of the identity of God's people. But the practice of giving an offering actually predates even that by a while. The first offerings that we see in the Bible are by Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. A long time before Abraham. Dozens of generations, right? We see, their offering at, we see another offering at the end of chapter 8 when Noah and his family get off the ark. In both of these scenarios, we see God's people give back a portion of what they receive from his hand. And, and so these stories are dozens of generations before the law was given. And, and so the first question, is tithing still a requirement for God's people? Well, that question assumes that because the law has been fulfilled in Jesus, we now have a new covenant and everything God told his people to do in Exodus, well, that, that no longer is in place, right? That, that's, a, that's what we often think. But well, we just discovered that this is a reality and a worldview of God's people long, long, long before any of that stuff. It's an identity piece, not a command piece. And we give back a portion of what we've been given, not to curry favor with God, but to honor him as the giver of those good things. And so requirement is probably too strong a word. But expectation isn't. That's not too strong a word. In fact, that's the appropriate word. And just to be honest, the but do I really have to question might just reveal something else that we need to talk about at another time. But what about question number two, though? Right? I mean, if it's an expectation, then what, what percentage should we give? I want the numbers, Stephen. Well, for a long, long time, a lot of people, the answer that they would give is 10%, right? Uh, that's a pretty easy benchmark to wrap our heads around, attempt to walk in. I mean, it makes the math easy, right? All you have to do is move the decimal point. I'm bad at all kinds of math, but I'm good at that math, right? I'm really good at that math. I handle the tips whenever we go out to eat because that's the only math I can do. I'm a humanities guy. Leave me alone. A lot of our older saints, they, they likely grew up with this mindset being a major point of discipline in their formative years. Give your 10%, give your 10%, give your 10%. It was drilled into you early and often. And, and by all accounts, there's, there's, there's good reason to believe that God has used your faithfulness, your steady faithfulness and others like you to bring about long-term health and ministry here. Thank you. It needs to be said out loud from time to time. Thank you. Consistent faithfulness, whether through abundant years or lean years, the NBC of today stands on the shoulders of the faithfulness that God has worked through you over the time. Consistent faithfulness tends to affect the health of things, no matter what you're talking about. And so for those of you who have spent your life investing here, Thank you. But, but like I said a second ago, pe people grew up thinking that the tithe, the 10% was the expectation. I grew up learning that. There's probably a bunch of other people in the room who could say the same thing. But I want to push back on that whole idea for a second. I want to do so for a couple of reasons. For one, the tithe is actually only one piece of a larger Old Testament puzzle. So if, if we want to point to an Old Testament model and celebrate that we're carrying the torch for our generation, then we actually need to use all the Old Testament offerings in our calculation, right? If we want to say, we're doing this, we're, we're carrying it to the next level, well, we need to account for all of the pieces in that pie. The, the tithe is only one piece, and there are actually several others. See, when you add in all the different seasonal and feast offerings, when you add in things like the, the unharvested edges of the field for others to glean, 
Well, the number for what God's people were called to give is actually somewhere between 20 and 35%, not 10 depends a little bit on how the celebrations fell in the calendar. It's a moving target a little bit, but 20 to 35 percent. And that doesn't even begin to cover things like the year of Jubilee, where property was sold back to its original family for cheap. Doesn't matter if the property made you a lot of money and it doubled or tripled in value in that time period. When the year of Jubilee came around, your job was to sell it back to the original family at cost. Does this mean that God expects us to give 20 to 35 percent? I don't, I don't think he does. But, but I do think we need to be really, really careful to not puff up our chest because, you know, we handled our 10, right? It's entirely possible to take a good spiritual thing like the disciplines and turn them into self-exalting things. And if we're not careful, that's exactly where we'll find ourselves. And so guard your heart on that. But there's a second reason that I want to push back on the 10% thing. And it's because of what we see here in Acts 2. In verse 45 specifically. Read it again with me. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needs. Hey guys, I don't think Luke is talking about everybody giving their 10% here. I mean, it's just what the text says, right? Now the picture that we're given here is of an otherworldly open-handedness. It's a core-level core disposition that goes looking for opportunities to serve. Looking for opportunities to give. It's the kind of attitude that sees a need and just immediately jumps all over it. It's mine. I want it. That's what's going on in, Luke, in Acts 2, 45. Luke says that some people would even go so far as to sell off some of their stuff in order to create more cash flow for better serving. Like, there are a lot of really amazing, super generous people in the world. Maybe you're even one of them. But this, this is different, <laughs> right? Like we all have stories we could tell of generosity. Times where someone came through for you and it just changed everything. It, it, it maybe even changed your life. Like I have a generosity story. Someone else was generous on my behalf and, and gave me something. And it literally led to me meeting my wife and directed me into a career of ministry. I could point to a single moment of someone's generosity that actually changed my life forever. Some of you probably also have stories of being the generous person, and you could attest all day long about how much more joyful and glorious and life-giving that moment is. Right? We all have those stories. But there's not a person in this room going, you know what? I think I should sell off my car so I can give more money away this month. Or maybe you are. Should we have a talk later? Under normal circumstances, people don't think like this. In fact, under normal circumstances, people are usually right to be suspicious of things like this. What's going on down at that church house? Right? But that's exactly what was going on within this brand new community of Jesus followers in Acts chapter 2. That's exactly what's going on. Whenever a need popped up in the body, the immediate reaction was to leverage everything possible in order to meet that need. What do you need? Okay, I've got this. Let me move some things around. It's an open-handedness that we all kind of, well, we all kind of immediately understand to be good and right and beautiful, but none of us have ever really seen it play out in a fallen world. Like, we all get that it's good. We all get that it's right and lovely, but, like, it's somebody else's story, not my story. 
Like, we, we, might, we might see that on TV, but don't ask that, that of me. And so what in the world would lead to someone consistently practicing this kind of generosity? And the only sufficient answer is an otherworldly perspective and priority. In other words, if the real world doesn't actually work this way, maybe the source is another world altogether. A worldview rooted in another world. See, the people in the, the first century church, they, they understood something absolutely massive about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's that it actually changes everything. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus for the payment of our sin, the reconciliation provided through atonement on the cross, the, the promise of eternal life for those who are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, it actually changes everything. It raises the level of your eyes and it changes your system of accounting. And, and listen, while things are important, no one's discounting that. God even promises to provide the things that we need in other places in the Bible right? because he loves us and he's good. Things are important, but they're also just things. That's all there'll ever be. I don't, I don't need to place my hope in things because my hope is now found in Jesus. That's a gospel reality. I don't need to trust in the security of things because my God is ever faithful. I don't need to rest in the comfort that things provide because Jesus has promised a far greater and eternal rest for those who are weary and heavy laden. Those are gospel realities. And so when I truly understand the gospel, when I actually get what it is that Jesus has done and is doing, my grip on things loosens and it becomes a whole lot easier for me to hand things over. because of the promise that has been given to us of an eternal family? Well, shouldn't I at least consider letting go of some temporary thing to help someone that I have an eternal relationship with? An eternal and otherworldly perspective doesn't simply open the door for radical generosity. It actually makes it the obvious choice for Christ-like stewardship. But there's another reason. Another reason for this otherworldly open-handedness, and it's found in verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, so not only do, does this early church get to celebrate and practice for a kingdom reality to come, but it's also impossible to hide otherworldly things. That's just the way the world works. It sticks out like a sore thumb, right? And so people begin to take notice and people begin to respond to what they're seeing. And so Luke says here that, that people begin to come to salvation daily because of what they saw fleshed out in this first century body of Christians. This early Christian community. Right? Yes, the, the cross is a stumbling block. The, the, the gospel is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. That's never going to not be true. But the church, man, when the church is doing what God has designed the church to do, it's attractive. Now when they get to the message of the cross, they may bow out. But when the church is being what, the God, what God has designed the church to be, people begin to perk up their heads and pay attention. 
It's good. Why? Because they've never seen anything like it before. It's completely otherworldly, and they don't know what to do with it. So we asked a question a moment ago that we haven't answered yet. All of this was set up by the tithing question. If, if the expectation for God's people was to continue to give, to continue to give back in this massive way, well, then what exactly would God have us to do? Well, I think, like, I think texts like Acts 2, I think they teach us that that's actually the wrong question. What God expects from his people is that they be so changed by the gospel, by, by what he has done for them, that they model an otherworldly generosity. That just like our Savior, we look to serve rather than to be served. That we, that we take the resources that he's seen fit to give us and we leverage them with an eternal perspective instead of a temporary one. That's what he wants for us. And, and this is why we do an offering on Sunday mornings. It's not a toll, it's not a tip, and it's certainly not a platform for people to show off their giving. No, we want to give you a chance to live open-handedly because it preaches the gospel. As a part of our time that celebrates who God is and what he has done, we want to give people an opportunity to pour into the needs of the church family and into the needs of gospel proclamation and into our collective witness that dumbfounds the world around us. That's why we do this. We're not looking to simply pay some bills. It's a natural overflow of those who understand who they are in Christ. It's a cultural identity of his people. But we are six days and 23 hours away from our next chance to participate in that. Right? That's, that's why it's a good week to preach this sermon. I'm literally as far away from the next offering as I can get. But how do we respond today? Like, what do we do with this? Well, by my estimation, there are four different types of people in this room. The first type are those who are members of National Baptist Church, and you are faithful givers. Thank you. Like I said a second ago, it needs to be said out loud from time to time. Thank you. But I would also humbly submit, also humbly submit that maybe, just maybe, it's time for you to prayerfully consider, seek out if God would have you take another step of faithfulness. Maybe, maybe he wouldn't. Maybe you're exactly where he would have you be, and that's okay. We are not counting percentages here. But otherworldly joy, the kind that comes with this radical generosity, that sounds like a lot of fun. Don't leave that on the table because, you know, you fulfilled your tin. Press in. The second type of people here, though, those who are members of Nashville Baptist Church and you are not investing here. Listen, we could use your help. Plain and simple. We could use your help. I, I want to be gentle and I want to be gracious, but I also want to speak the truth and say, making your brothers and sisters carry a burden that you're not willing to carry is not the best way to love them. By your being a member here, you've said in front of every other part of this church body that I am here to be a part of the body. So press in, please. Now, I, I don't know your circumstances. I don't know your situation, and I probably never will. I don't see numbers here. I don't know who gives what and who doesn't give what. Uh, I, I'm not even allowed to know. But I do see our budget. 
see that more often than anybody else does. And there are times, months, where we have to spend more money than we brought in. Not exactly a healthy way to do things, right? If, if that were happening in your home, I'm assuming at some point you'd sit down with the rest of your family and say, uh, something's got to change. Right? And so if that's you, man, we could use your help. Press in. There's a third group of people in the room. Those who are Christians but are part of another church family. So I'm glad you came to visit with us this morning. I like hanging out with Christians from other places. I really, really honestly believe that God is bigger and doing massive things outside of these four walls. So I'm glad you hung out today. Um, I personally, though, believe that it's becoming increasingly more and more difficult to have these kind of conversations in the church, in public, right? And so let me do a your pastor a favor. I don't know who they are, but let me do him a solid, be a buddy to him, and just say something that might be really, really difficult, and maybe they're even scared to say. Your church, wherever that may be, desperately needs you and the rest of the people that God is to be a part, God is called to be a part of that church, to press in and make disciples wherever that church is, all right? And so I'm glad you're here today, but eventually you're going to go home, right? Go press in at home. And then there's a fourth group here. Those of you who are not Christians yet. You're working through the truth claims of Jesus and you're trying to figure out whether or not Jesus is even worth following or if he's something that you're interested in. And let's be real honest, coming into a church building and hearing a money, uh, a money sermon, a tithing sermon, probably didn't help you out this morning. Here's what you need to know. Two things I hope you walk out the door this morning with. The first one is that Jesus does not shy away from the real issues of this world. Not one bit. He's not simply concerned about where you spend your Sundays and your eternity. He is a whole life Savior. He is a whole life Lord. And so as you process through what it would mean to follow King Jesus and submit to him, understand that his call on your life is nothing less than all-encompassing. He wants every piece of you. But there's a second thing that the non-Christian needs to walk out the door with this morning. It's the knowledge that, well, it's, it's pretty much worthless to invest in a kingdom that you're not a part of. My job as a pastor is to equip and send the rest of the church body out for the work of ministry. That's what Ephesians 4 tells me my job as a pastor is. And so that means that from time to time, I've got to address subjects that only really apply to the Christians in the room. So hear me clearly. Your call this morning is not to give money or time or anything else to the church. I'll say that again for emphasis. Your call, if you're not a believer, is not to give your money or your time or anything else to this church or any other church. Your call is to follow Jesus. Full stop. Now, I truly believe that Jesus is worth trading everything for. We'll get to that at another time. But don't put the cart before the horse, right? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, you can respond to God's word today by meeting him in repentance and faith. There's, there's nothing, absolutely nothing that you could ever give to him that would outpace the great thing he's already done for you. Reconciliation to God by God through the cross. So you can receive him in faith this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. But let's all respond to God's word today. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Acts 2. We don't want to romanticize 
a time where they were still trying to figure everything out. But God, there's a beautiful simplicity to the way that church operated. I'm sure there were all kinds of messes that didn't get told in that story. But I still want what they had. They weren't trying to build an empire. They weren't trying to be more impressive than whoever down the road. They they met in each other's homes. They shared meals. They preached your word. They sang together and they met each other's needs and they Well, your church is a beautiful thing when we do it right. And so God, I, my prayer, even though there's extra layers now, my prayer is that you would bring that kind of simplicity to bear here. I don't want complexity. I want you. I want what you would have for us. It seems good. It's almost like you're smarter than us. God, for those in here who are part of the NBC family who have been faithfully giving for a long, long time, thank you for their dedication and their, their love for your bride. God, if, if you would have us take another step, show us clearly what that is. It's going to be different for everybody in the room, but you're a big enough God to work out those details. For those here who claim to be a part of our family and they're not pressed in, would you give them an, an urgency to take the next step? And God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them today? God, would you bring people into your kingdom and into the church here? Because you are good and you are worthy to be praised. And you are the one that is the good giver of every good gift. So let us celebrate you more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.